If you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is where we are going to be today. If our money could talk, do you ever wonder what it would tell us? Assuming our money could talk and assuming that our money was for us, assuming that it was trying to help us, I sincerely doubt that we would be shocked at all at what our money would tell us because we kind of already know, don't we? If our money started talking, our response would be along the lines of, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. Yeah, I, I, I shouldn't have. Yeah, I, I, I should have done this. And the shocker, I think, and what we're going to talk about in this series is, is not what our money would say. What, what I hope is a shock to you and, and a pleasant surprise, honestly, is a parallel between what our money would say if it could talk and what Jesus did say when he did talk. In fact, did you know that Jesus actually said more about, more about money than he did heaven? Jesus gave about 35 or 38, depending on how you count them, parables, these stories where he illustrated what the kingdom of God was like and what we were supposed to do in the meantime. And of those 30 or some parables, 16 of them had to do with money and possessions. So we're going to jump right in. If your money started talking and my money could talk, one thing for sure it would tell us is that I can add meaning to your life, but I'm not the meaning of life. I can add meaning to your life, but I'm not the meaning of life. My money, your money, our money would remind us that money doesn't get a whole lot of play at funerals, except to the extent of which it was given away. In fact, money would remind us that it's a much better means than it is an end. In fact, if you make money your end, you may end up alone. But using money as a means to an end is what makes money meaningful. Now listen to what I'm going to say because it impacts every one of us. And this is going to be the theme of what we talk about today. I want you to think about this. Being a means to an end is what makes anything meaningful. Being a means to an end is what makes anything meaningful. And this is why we don't have segues. You ever ridden on a segway before? If you've ever ridden on a segway, you're like, this is the coolest thing in the world. Like, i got to have one of these. But then you can never come up with a reason for why you, you should have one. Like, even if they were less expensive, like, we, we still, we could never figure out a meaning for this. And so they became meaningless. They're interesting, right? They're fun, but they're just not a means to an end that anybody's come up with yet. The thing that makes anything or anyone meaningful is when that thing or that person becomes a means to an end. That's what it means to have meaning. That's what meaning actually means. The same thing's true for you. If you want to live a meaningful life, you have to figure out how to become a means to an end that's not you. If you want a meaningful life, then you have to, you have to come up with a way of being a means to an end that goes beyond you. And what we're going to discover in this series is that when you decide to be a means to an end, your money becomes a means rather than an end as well. And you'll begin to view your money, your possessions, your, your resources, your net worth. You'll begin to view everything as a tool. And we shouldn't be surprised. Because this is exactly what Jesus taught us. And one of those, are you kidding me? Did he really say that? Parables. 
So Luke was a first century doctor who actually got the information about the life of Jesus and he put it in an orderly chronological account for his first century audience. And it was so valuable to the church that they meticulously copied it down and it was collected with some other documents that became part of our New Testament, which became part of our Bible. And so Luke, who thoroughly investigated these things, he records for us several of Jesus' parables and one of them is a parable about money and possessions. And here's what Luke recorded that Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man. And immediately they knew that this wasn't a true story. They knew Jesus was making up this story in order to make a point. So once upon a time, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. There was a rich man who had so much to manage, he couldn't manage it all. He had so much to manage that he hired a manager who bought and sold and traded with his name. And he got word that this manager was doing deals on the side and and doing some dishonest practices that made him nervous. So Jesus continues that this rich man who had too much to manage had to have a manager. And so he he called the manager in. He says, hey, what's going on here? Word on the street is you're not being honest. You're not being very accountable. You're not, you're not managing my stuff well. You're not representing me well with my stuff. Verse two, well, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. In other words, get the books together, finish up whatever you're doing because you can no longer be my manager any longer. So he fires him. But before he lets him go, he says, you're fired, but, but I need you to kind of tidy up the loose ends. Bring me the big notebook, give it to me, and then you're out of here. You can no longer be my manager. So Jesus continues in verse 3, and everybody's leaning in because Jesus is such a good storyteller. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? I wasn't expecting this. I got caught. What should I do now? My master is taking away my job, and I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm an inside guy. I'm I'm too proud to beg. I'm too ashamed to do anything else. And and so suddenly this guy in the parable, he finds himself with a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity to figure out what he's going to do and if anybody's going to have him. And so he thinks about it and he comes up with an idea. And he says in verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when, because this is all about time, when I lose my job here, I'm losing it, people will welcome me into their houses. So he comes up with this plan to make sure that when he's no longer employed by the rich guy, he has some place to go and someone to go to. And so here's the plan that he comes up with. Jesus is telling the parable. Verse 5, so he called in each one of his master's debtors. And the master probably had a lot of debtors. He gives us just two illustrations of them. He calls in each person who, who owed his master something, these people who he had been doing business with, And he asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? And the gentleman said in verse 6, well, I owe your master 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. And the manager said, take your bill and sit down quickly. Sit down quickly before anybody finds out. Sit down quickly because I don't have much time and I need to make sure that I take good advantage of my limited time and make sure that I have somewhere to go and someone to go to. I've only got a little bit of time left. Sit down quickly and make it 450. So in the parable, everyone in Jesus' audience has mixed emotions. 
If you're on the owing side, it's like, wow, that's a good deal. I had 900, suddenly I only have half that. And then the people who are on the, the rich people's side are like, what a crook. No wonder that he needs to let him go. And so the guy's like, absolutely, let's just finish this up. Let's just get, man, boy, this is amazing. Th- thank you, thank you. Hey, hey, if you ever need anything, you just, you just give me a call, okay? Okay, yeah, yeah, I, I might do that. Verse 7, Jesus continues, he asked the second, and how much do you owe my master? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Yeah, just, just 800. Let's just finish this account out. Let's, let's make sure that, 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 that we just wrap this thing up. Wow, wow, thank you, thank you. Hey, if there's, if there's anything I can ever do for you, you, you just let me know, okay? Okay. You might be hearing from me sooner than you think. And the implication is that he did this over and over and over because in the parable, Jesus said that he went to each one of the people who he had done business with, his master, and he settled these accounts so they could all be settled, but he gave everyone these huge, huge discounts. Now, in the parable, when the boss, or as Jesus says it, the master, because you know the master's going to find out about it, right? The master and everyone in Jesus' audience is thinking, oh man, this guy's going to jail, This guy may get executed. And if you haven't heard this parable before, that might be what you're thinking too. And the reason you're thinking that is is because Jesus is the master storyteller. Jesus knew how to get his first century audience and sometimes his 21st century audience to lean in and to be just confused enough to where we really pay attention and ask the question, what is Jesus trying to tell in this fictitious story? Because in every parable, there's someone who represents God, and there's someone who represents the people in Jesus' audience. There's someone who represents God, and there's someone who represents you and me. And the people in Jesus' first century audience assumed that the dishonest manager was about to get in really big trouble. But they'd be wrong. And if that's where you thought that this was going, you'd be wrong, because it says that Jesus actually commends in the story, the master commended, he, he complimented him. That when he found out what happened, he smiled. He high-fived the guy. He slapped his knee and laughed and said, man, that, you got me. I was good. And the text says that inside this made-up story, in order to make a point, Jesus said in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He commended him in the parable because he thought it through. He thought it through with the future in mind. He thought it through with his limited opportunity and his limited time in mind. He thought it through with his own future in mind. And of course, Jesus' audience may be like you. Jesus' audience is confused. Wait a minute, he should be in trouble. You're you're telling me that the wealthy guy actually commended the dishonest manager? What's going on here? So Jesus has them right where he wants them. He has us right where he wants us. And Jesus steps out of the parable and he begins to teach the lesson he wants his audience from the parable to learn. That in the kingdom of heaven, the way that God views wealth, money, and possessions is different than the way that we view it. And here's how he views it, and here's the lesson. This is the takeaway. This is the application of the parable of the unjust, dishonest money manager. 
He steps out of the parable. He looks at us. He looks at his first century audience, and here's what he says, verse 8. For the people of the world, okay, the people who live their lives as if this life is all there is, the people who live as if it's only about a birth certificate and a death certificate, the people who live as if all you see is all there is and all you get, the people of this world, he says, are more shrewd, okay, that is, they're more thoughtful, they think things through better, they are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And the people of the light in this particular context were the Jewish people. These people who had an eternal promise of God, who had the covenants of God, these people that God was gonna do something amazing through their nation, that sometimes the, peop- sometimes the people who have the promises of God aren't as thoughtful and don't think things through as well as the people who just assume that all there is to this life is this life. And then he expands it to those of us who have faith in Jesus. So anyone who believes that there's more to life than life, that there's life beyond this life, he says to us that, that the people in the world, oftentimes, they think it through better than those of us who live in terms of eternity, those of us who live within a broader context. The money manager was commended for taking full advantage of his limited time and his limited opportunity. And Jesus' point is the reason this guy was commended, it's not because he was dishonest. He was commended because he took full advantage of his little bit of time and his little bit of opportunity. And Jesus' point for you and me is simply this, that we do the same. That when it comes to our money and our wealth and our income, we are to view it within this context, not simply of this life, but within the broader context. And we're to ask the question, how do I get maximum use out of it in light of my limited time on this planet and the limited opportunity that comes my way? And then just to make sure that that we don't miss it, Jesus leans in and he gets really, really specific. And he gives a command to those of us who are followers of Christ. If you're a believer, Jesus leans in and he says in verse nine, I tell you. In other words, he's saying, pay attention now. I'm talking to you. This isn't a story. I tell you. And then here's the command, use. Why? Because it's a means to an end. It's not the end because it's a tool. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, like the money manager, so that when it's gone, because it will be gone, actually you'll be gone, when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now the implications here are there is something we can do with temporary wealth during this little slot of time we have in life that makes an eternal difference. And honestly, I would not take that seriously and you shouldn't take it seriously either except for one thing. And that's after Jesus was crucified, he came back to life. And when someone predicts their own death and resurrection and then pulls it off, when they have anything to say about death or resurrection, we ought to lean in and we ought to listen. So consequently, as we look back through the filter of the resurrection, and and Luke is writing after the resurrection of Jesus, and he's saying, hey, I know this sounds a little bit crazy, and I know that Jesus' first century audience didn't really understand everything, uh, what what Jesus was talking about, but, but clearly there's something to this because Jesus substantiated the idea that there is eternity, not just through his teaching, but through his life and especially through his resurrection. 
But his point is clear that our money is a means. It's not the end. It is a means to an end that goes beyond us, and Jesus says it even goes beyond this life. And the implication is, is that our right now resources have the potential to make a forever difference. That, that we can't take it with us. We, we've been told that our whole lives, right? That we can't take it with us. But there is a way for us to have something to show for it beyond this life. It is a means to an end. As Jesus would say, it's a tool. Now that means that we shouldn't view a percentage of what we have as something that should be made available to the Lord. It means that we should view 100% of what we have as a potential means to an end. In other words, the the question that, that we ought to begin to ask as followers of Christ is how can I leverage more of what I have as a means to an end that's not me? How can I leverage more of what I have to be a means to an end outside of what benefits me? Because I think all of us have experienced this just enough to know that that's where the true joy is found, isn't it? When when Tara and I first got married, we set up our budget and and we started doing life together. We decided up front that there was gonna be a percentage of our money that was gonna be given away. We just decided that, that, that right off the top, 10% was gonna be given to the church and then another percent is gonna go to, to other things that we love. And so we made a decision, and it's a decision that, that I've, I've encouraged young couples to make for several years. That you should decide ahead of time what percentage of your income you're gonna live on. And here's why. The reason you should decide ahead of time what percentage of your income you wanna live on is because you're gonna live on a percentage of your income, right? Let me say that again. All of you are living on a percentage of your income. Why not choose it rather than your lifestyle choose it for you? You see, that's what shrewd, forward-thinking people do. They don't think about the number of dollars. They think about the percentage. And, And so we decided just no matter how much comes in, we're living on a percentage. And, and then we're gonna, we're gonna give a percentage away. And, and, and we also decided that, that anything we, we own, we wanna, try to, we wanna try to figure out how to use it to help other people. And we've been successful and, and we've been unsuccessful. And sometimes I kinda lose track and, and Tara's like, remember, remember, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she's way more inclined to generosity than, than I am. And we also decided that, that we don't want to be people who are just hoarding stuff. Like if we're not using it, we've got to find a way to, to get it into circulation and find a way to help other people. And we decided that, that if, if there's a need that, that can be met, then, then we want to try to meet that need. And yeah, sometimes that gets complicated. And honestly, that, that might not always be a wise decision, but, but if I ever am going to err, I want to err on the side of generosity. So what's happened through the years and this isn't unique for me, some of you have probably done this too. Throughout the years, what happened is we turn stuff into stories and we don't miss the stuff. And some of these stories, as I think back, they're, they're still emotional to us. We don't think about the things or the opportunities that, that we missed out on because we made a pre-decision, this is how we want to live. We decided ahead of time that it's all in play. It's all available. How do we use more of what comes our way and what sits in our bucket of resources to do things that are not simply for us? And and the number of dollars is irrelevant. It's all about pre-deciding ahead of time. 
It's all God's. Here's the percentage that's going ahead of time, and we're going to figure out how to live on the rest. And I'll tell you what I know about you, that all of you have several factors, several things that you factor into your financial decisions. We all do, even if you don't have them written down, even if you don't know what they are, I promise you every time you make a financial decision, you factor in something, right? So I want to suggest that you begin factoring this question in. Because this could possibly free you up to be the kind of person that you actually want to be anyway. And here's the question. Do I want more stuff or do I want more stories? Do I want more stuff or do I want more stories? And just to give you a tip, nobody's going to talk about your stuff in the end. They're going to tell stories about you. Do you want more stuff or do you want more stories? Now, some of you, you have been a part of Bachelor Creek for a long, long time. And others of you, like me, are, are fairly new. But what I would encourage you to do before you leave today is just kind of walk around our facilities and, and take a look. And you'll see that there have been a lot of additions. There's been a lot of remodels over the years. And some of you have been here for, for several of those. And for those of you who gave to help make those projects possible, what I want you to know is that for the rest of your life, that is part of your story. And the same goes for every harvest offering that, that we collect, every kid that we send to camp, every missionary that we support. And I know that you don't miss the money that you decided to give to make those dreams possible. But these facilities... Every child that comes to faith, every baptism story, every adult that finds freedom from addiction, every marriage that's been restored, every mom who drags her kid in here, their story is your story for the rest of your life, and I hope that you never lose sight of that. And the reason I want to say that is because every time that you give through Bachelor Creek, every time that you walk into our building, any time you experience a baptism, you can feel like their story is part of your story. And I don't miss the money we gave, and I wouldn't trade the money that we gave for the stories of changed lives. I mean, how do you compare the stuff to the stories, right? And yeah, we got to make a living. We got to pay our bills, and we got to get our kids through school. I get all that. I'm not advocating irresponsible living. I'm just saying you got to factor this in. What do you want? Do you want more stuff or more stories? Now, here's Jesus' point. His point is simply this. Money can add meaning to your life when you use it as a means to an end that goes beyond you. Now, his teaching on the parable is not over yet, and I'm going to go through this quickly because it's fascinating. So back to the parable. Everybody's leaning in, and Jesus continues in verse 10. He says, whoever, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And it keeps going in verse 11. So I tell you, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And Jesus' point is simply this, that no matter how much you have, no matter where you think it ultimately came from, that your money, your wealth, your possessions, not only is it a means to an end, not only is it a tool from God's perspective, it's also all a test as well. It's like the manager in the parable 
that we have a little bit of time and a little bit of money and a little bit of resources, and we are basically being tested to determine whose kingdom we are most devoted to. Is it the birth-to-death kingdom of this world? Or is it the kingdom that goes beyond what we can see with our eyes, that goes beyond the, the 70, 80, or 90 years of our physical lives? But Jesus isn't done. He says in verse 12, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, it's like, hold on, wait, wait, wait. What are you talking about? I'm not a money manager. This is my stuff. I'm not managing for someone else. I mean, this is my paycheck. This is my money. I have the deed to the house. I have the title to the car. What do you mean someone else's property? This is my stuff. If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So at this point, maybe you're saying, okay, Jesus, you lost me here. But if our money could talk, I think it would confirm what Jesus is saying at the end of this teaching. It would say, I'll still be here when you're gone. And the moment that you think you own me, I actually own you. Because all of us, like the money manager in the parable, are in fact managers. We're not owners. And the way we know we're not owners is that if you're going to leave it behind, clearly you don't own it. You're just managing it. But here's the real question. If you're just a manager, not an owner, who are you managing it for? I mean, if you're just carbon matter, if you're just an accident of of evolution by natural selection, if if you just happen to be and you don't know where it is and why it is and you don't know why anything exists, then I don't know how to answer the question of who you're managing this for because you're going to leave it all behind. We all know that. Nobody argues with that. But think about this. If in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and if in the beginning God created mankind in his image, and if in the beginning God made us as a people stewards of this planet, and he gave each of us a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity and a little bit of resources to manage, then suddenly this makes perfect sense. And Jesus would say, manage it well. And please don't get confused. If our money could talk, it would remind us, I'm a means, I'm not an end. I'm a tool and I'm a test. I can add meaning to your life, but don't be confused, I'm not the meaning of your life. And so as we conclude, I I wanna ask this question. Where do we start? For those of you who are Christians, for, for those of you who have already settled the issue that there's more to this life than this life, for those of you who wrestle with this because you, you, you hate the greed that kind of bubbles up within you sometimes, you hate the resistance that you feel when there's an opportunity to, to do more and your heart's saying yes and, and when you get out the pen or, or you get out your phone and you've decided that, that you, wanna, you wanna add another zero on there, you just kinda, kinda have the struggle, right? Where do, where do we start? I think the real place to start is the place that Jesus is pointing to And the place to start is not really an amount of money. The place to start really isn't even a percentage. The place to start is a bigger question. It's a big question that most people never stop to ask. And the question that most people don't have an answer for, a question that on the surface has nothing to do with money, but in the end it has everything to do with money. Here's the question I want to leave you with. If being a means to an end is what gives your life meaning and purpose, 
To what ends do you want your life to be a means? If being a means to an end that goes beyond you is what gives your life meaning and purpose, to what ends do you want your life to be a means to? What do you want people to celebrate about you when you're gone? What makes your heart break right now that you're actually doing something about, not just complaining about? What would you want people to to line up to thank you for at the end of your life? And friends, I'm telling you, if you don't have answers to those questions, your appetites will eat up all of your resources. If you don't answer those questions for yourself, your appetites will dictate an answer to you, and I know what your answer to those questions isn't. You wouldn't give the answer, well, you know, here's what it is for me. Accumulation, consumption, upgrades, fashion, a house full of stuff, that's the meaning of my life. Nobody chooses this on purpose. Listen, if if you don't decide the ends to which you want your life to be a means, that is the direction your culture is going to take you. You already know that, and you don't want to spend another season of your life like that. I know you don't. Nobody does. You know, she ate, she drank, she was married, then she died, right? That's not a legacy. That is a wasted life. And here's the thing, when when you answer the big question, when you start wrapping your heart around the answer to the big question, your money will follow because money is a means to an end. Money is a tool, it's not the goal. And we have all lived long enough to have seen that in the lives of other people. We have all experienced enough joy to know it's true. When you answer the big question, something begins to happen in your heart. But listen, until you answer the big question, you may just end up following your money, and that would be a shame because you live for yourself. You live for yourself, and you have nothing to show for yourself except some stuff that people are going to argue about when you're gone. So this week, here's the question that I want you to wrestle with. If being a means to an end is what gives life meaning, to what end do I want my life to be a means? And when you identify that and and you embrace the answer to that question, your money will begin to follow and you will begin to view everything that you own, everything that comes your way as a means to an end as it was intended to be. Now at the end of this teaching, there's something very interesting that happens. As Jesus was teaching his disciples, there was another group listening on the outskirts because there was always a group following Jesus around trying to trap him trying to ask him tricky questions, trying to get the crowd to turn against him. And so Luke tells us at the very end of his teaching, he says in verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this. Everything that we've just talked about, the Pharisees who loved money heard all about this and were sneering at Jesus. And do you know what their names were? Yeah, I don't either. So let's make sure we get this right. Let's pray together. God, I pray that we would be faithful stewards of what you have entrusted to us. God, help us to be good money managers, knowing that you are the owner that we would live our lives as a means to a greater end, something that is greater than ourselves. 
And I want to specifically pray for anybody who's, who honestly their life is all about them. I pray that, that you would become the end to which they're living for. We think it's about money, but really it's about something a whole lot bigger than that. It's about what, what's our life about? What are we living for? Who are we living for? And God, I pray that we would live for you, that we would understand that eternity is in play here. And that's what Jesus was teaching us. That's what you were calling us to is a life, an eternal life with you. And if anybody here does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray today would be the day that they would say, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life and I want you, God, to be the end that I'm living for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.